Help defend the church by becoming a supporter of 1 Peter 5. Your tax-deductible contributions enable us to continue our work to restore Catholic culture and rebuild Catholic tradition. Make a real difference in the church. Go to 1peter5.com forward slash donate today. You're listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. It is a real joy for us. Rebuilding Catholic Culture, Restoring Catholic Tradition. Allow me, if you will, a moment of spontaneity. I wasn't planning on recording a podcast today, um, but I'm having a really hard time doing anything but thinking about some things that are that are difficult to put into the written word. They need to sort of be figured out out loud. You see, I'm feeling extremely frustrated right now um, because I feel really very much alone. Alone in my attempts to expose the agendas that are at work in the church, particularly in the Vatican and in what can only be described as the Pope's cabal, because it's a cabal. It is. It's a group of men who have an agenda that is anti-Catholic and they are in the highest positions of power within the church. And there are other men of influence in the church, other men of power, bishops, cardinals, priests, theologians, none of whom are willing to come forward and say what is happening is wrong. It's been weeks now since Pope Francis promoted the idea that eugenic contraception is acceptable. Is this his most egregious contradiction of Catholic teaching? Probably. It's hard to say for sure. It doesn't help that he bolstered his case by what appears to be a fabrication, if not a lie, about Pope Paul VI allowing contraception to nuns in anticipation of systematic rape in the Congo. It's a story that nobody can verify. Very few people believe has any merit or truth. But even if it did, it's ethically unrelated. It's an entirely different argument, morally speaking. It's an argument that I don't even want to get into right now. But but we know for a fact that Pope Francis gave the, the green light implicitly to use contraception in order to avoid birth defects in marriages. Contraception in marriages. It's a violation of church teaching. And if you're not familiar with this by now, well, perhaps just in the interest of due diligence, I should read you what he said. The Holy Father was asked by a journalist from Spain... 
Holy Father, for several weeks there's been a lot of concern in many Latin American countries, but also in Europe regarding the Zika virus. The greatest risk would be for pregnant women. There's anguish. Some authorities have proposed abortion, or else to avoiding pregnancy. As regards avoiding pregnancy, on this issue, can the church take into consideration the concept of the lesser of two evils? Pope Francis responds, Abortion is not the lesser of two evils. It is a crime. It is to throw someone out in order to save another. That's what the mafia does. It is a crime, an absolute evil. On the lesser evil, avoiding pregnancy, we are speaking in terms of the conflict between the fifth and the sixth commandment. Paul VI, a great man in a difficult situation in Africa, permitted nuns to use contraceptives in the case of rape. Don't confuse the evil of avoiding pregnancy by itself with abortion. Abortion is not a theological problem, it's a human problem. It is a medical problem. You kill one person to save another, in the best case scenario, or to live comfortably, no? It's against the Hippocratic oaths doctors must take. It is an evil in and of itself, but it is not a religious evil in the beginning. No, it's a human evil. Then, obviously, as with every human evil, each killing is condemned. On the other hand, avoiding pregnancy is not an absolute evil. In certain cases, as in this one, such as the one I mentioned of Blessed Paul VI, it was clear. I would also urge doctors to do their utmost to find vaccines against these two mosquitoes that carry this disease. This needs to be worked on. Now, as usual, the Holy Father is as clear as mud. But if we parse it down just a little bit, we have a few things here. He's saying that abortion is a crime. It's to throw someone out in order to save another. No, it's not just to throw someone out. It is to murder them. I've thrown people out before, people who were unwelcome guests at my home. I didn't kill them. I did tell them to get the hell out, but I didn't kill them. He says that um, there's a conflict between the fifth and the sixth commandments. No, no, there's not. No, all commandments come from God. And there is no conflict between the commandments. That's not possible. God is not self-contradictory, unlike his vicar. He says, don't confuse the evil of avoiding pregnancy by itself with abortion. So he's saying, or at least it seems that he's saying, that avoiding pregnancy is an evil. Although he goes on later to say avoiding pregnancy is not an absolute evil. So he's seeing it as some form of evil, but not an absolute one. What does that mean? Well, it could mean intrinsic evil. That would be my guess, because he doesn't seem to see it as an intrinsic evil. He says that abortion is not a theological problem. It's a human problem. It's a medical problem. No, it's all of the above. It is a theological problem. God gave us life. And to take a life is to violate the commandment that he gave us not to murder. He also says that killing, or at least abortion, because he never terms it as killing, is an evil in and of itself. But he does not say that contraception is. In fact, he says, on the other hand, avoiding pregnancy is not an absolute evil. Contextually, he's saying it's not an intrinsic evil. Then he says, in certain cases, as in this one, 
This one is the Zika question. Then he says, such as the one I mentioned of Blessed Paul VI, which was made up, it was clear. I would urge doctors to do their utmost to find vaccines against the mosquitoes, etc. The context makes clear he is saying contraception can be morally justified to prevent the transmission of birth defects due to a virus. If you didn't catch this yet, I, I wanted you to know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you did catch it, I apologize for having to rehash it. But this is pretty important considering that he contradicted infallible teaching. Have we seen a single bishop say that the Pope is wrong on this? No, we haven't. Not one. Oh, we've seen bishops make comments about how you can't use contraception in these cases. Bishop Schneider, as usual, I think was the most outspoken about this. In an exclusive interview that we had uh, with Bishop Schneider uh, when he was in the UK, and Daniel Blackman, who's one of our contributors, asked Bishop Schneider, he said, Pope Francis has again given a press interview on the plane back from Cuba. He made a comment on the Zika virus and using contraception. He cited the case of the Congo nuns and discernment. Father Lombardi has clarified the Pope's comment. And by the way, he clarified it saying that, yes, the Pope was talking about contraception. The bishops of the Philippines have now publicly called for a review of church teaching in this area. Is this really a debate the church needs to address or maneuvers by people inside and outside the church who want the teaching on contraception changed? Bishop Schneider's response was this. He said, this is a part of an agenda, clearly, to change the truths of the church in morality in the topic of contraception. It is all a plan, a great pressure, and an agenda in the sphere of contraception. In the church in our days, there is the danger of a practical admittance of divorce and reception of Holy Communion. It is a practical denial of the indissolubility of marriage. There's a pivot here that I'm not comfortable with, and I love Bishop Schneider. Love him. But he, he begins by saying that this is part of an agenda to change the truths of the church and morality on contraception. He said it's all part of a plan. But then he pivots to the admittance of the divorced and remarried to receive Holy Communion. He moves away from this topic of what the Pope just said is something that he is not allowed to say. Now, we've certainly heard nothing from any other bishop or cardinal, not that any of them, not that any of them have the backbone that Bishop Schneider does, because they don't. Frankly, they don't. He is the single loudest voice. And in this case, he's still hedging his bets. So what do we have? We have the Pope saying, essentially, in the media, that Catholics can use contraception if they're concerned about birth defects can be extrapolated to any number of situations. Not a single bishop or cardinal, to my knowledge, has come out and said to the faithful, this is not magisterial teaching. This is a contradiction of Humanae Vitae, Casti Canubi, and the perennial teaching of the church. It is not acceptable. It is not allowable. You must not follow the 
personal opinion of the Pope in this matter. Not one. So what does that tell the faithful? Well, it tells them, go ahead, do whatever you want to do. Nobody cares. It doesn't matter. You want to use a condom? Knock yourself out. You want to use hormonal contraception? Hey, we've been letting that happen for a long time under the idea that it's anovulant, that it suppresses ovulation, when in fact, most hormonal contraception, pretty much all, acts at least some of the time as an abortifacient. But hey, <laughs> what's a little science among friends and among moral theologians? I reached out to some theologians on this. Theologians who really are competent to talk to these issues. And I got some helpful personal opinions and information. Um, you know, that helps me to frame my own debate. But but there was this shrinking away from speaking publicly of putting one's professional credibility on the line and saying there is a moral theological problem with this assessment. Now, I am a longtime Catholic writer, lifelong Catholic. I have a bachelor's degree in theology. But as far as my credibility goes on the ecclesiastical scale, I'm pretty much on the bottom rung of the ladder. I am a bloviator. I am an opinion maker. I am a pundit, a polemicist at times. I am not a theologian with a doctorate in a particular discipline of theology with tenure at a Catholic university. And who has taken the mandatum, the oath of fidelity to the magisterium under the dictates of Ex Corde Ecclesiae. If you had a coalition of theologians with those kinds of bona fides saying something, do you think that might hold a little bit more weight? Because no matter how big I grow the audience of 1 Peter 5, I'm still just, in the minds of my detractors, a blogger. That's it. And what does the word blogger con you know, connotate in your mind? Somebody who sits in their mother's basement writing about things in their pajamas. They've got it wrong. I actually sit in my own basement writing about things in my pajamas. But, you know, let's not, let's not split hairs. I need support. When I started this website, I had a couple things in mind. Now, one was the direct criticism of what was happening in Rome had its uses, but also its limits. And I really wanted to move away from confronting the problems of the papacy to building up the perennial teaching of the church, building up the things that can't change. The unchanging things were initially the focus. But that was before there was an almost daily onslaught of misdirection and error and, and confusion and just scandal coming from Rome. 
you know, I often find myself conflicted. I'm like, how much am I going to write about what's going on in the papacy, in Rome, with the curia, with the bishops? When am I going to stop writing about this and go back to writing about the more edifying things? And the, the thought that just keeps coming to my mind is when they stop spewing a fountain of crap every day. Because I'm not keeping up with them. They are doing so much more, so much faster, and yet I look like I'm obsessed because I'm reacting to a fraction of it. The most egregious fraction. I can't even get to it all. The other thing I I thought when I started the website is in those areas where criticism is needed, which have now broadened and expanded, what I can do is I can go out and lay down covering fire for those who, by the nature of their position, have to be more reticent, more cautious. You know, it's hard for a theologian. It's difficult. I recorded a podcast with a theologian at one of the big Catholic universities about the limits of papal infallibility. A year ago, I think. We've been online now almost two years, but I believe it was last year. And it was a great podcast. Fantastic. And it never saw the light of day. Why? Well, because by sort of circumscribing those limits of papal infallibility and talking discreetly about here are some concrete examples of things that the Pope has done that wouldn't fall under that. What we wound up with at the end was a a theologian who is under, who, who exists, who teaches, who serves at the pleasure of his bishop, because that's to whom the mandatum is given. It's to the magisterium, but the bishop is the overseer. Who, in trying to defend the magisterium of the church and her teaching, winds up potentially beholden to a bishop who could yank his mandatum to teach. He takes the oath of fidelity so that you, as a parent, so that you, as a student, so that you, as a Catholic, can say, This is a guy who cares enough about orthodoxy, who cares enough about the deposit of faith, that he's willing to take an oath saying he will uphold it. He's not, you know, one of these professors that's going to sneak in all this junk, not without perjuring himself before God, which is a terrible idea. He's going to do his best to uphold magisterial teaching. That's what that oath is for. It's to give you confidence and security as a consumer of what he's offering, that education. But in a time where the corruption in the church goes all the way to the top, that oath of fidelity becomes a noose around a theologian's neck. Because the minute it looks like he's criticizing the present magisterium of the church in service of the perennial magisterium of the church, but nobody thinks about anything but the present moment because we're all imminentists now. He can have his mandatum yanked. It doesn't matter if he's tenured. He loses his job because without a mandatum, a a theologian can't teach at one of the Orthodox Catholic schools, at one of the Newman Guide schools. It can't happen. It's become this double-edged sword. 
I know another theologian who has curtailed their writing because they've gotten in hot water for offering honest analyses of things that they see going on. Some won't even come forward. They'll have private conversations with you, but they will never say on the record what it is that they really think. Now, on some level, I not only understand this, but I encourage their reticence. Why? Well, because these are the men and women that we need forming the Catholic minds of the next generation. I don't want a podcast that reaches a few thousand people to cost to cost a theologian their their profession where they're forming the minds of students year after year after year who will who will be inoculated against error who will be able to go out into the world and resist the errors that are spreading through the church that's an essential and important thing. This isn't just about job security. It's not just about supporting families. And I know I've had conversations with some of these guys and one conversation in particular sticks out. And, and he said, I'm willing to go drive a UPS truck if that's what it takes, because I, I believe in the church and in the truth and I want to uphold it. He's like, but I have to make sure that whatever hill I die on is worth dying on. And of course, one theologian alone it's just like sticking your head up when there's a sniper. You're going to get popped. One bishop alone. One priest alone. But after three years of this papacy and its constant escalation, where is the coalition? Priests, bishops, theologians, where are you? Have you not had enough time to kind of build a network behind the scenes? I wanted to lay down suppressing fire. I wanted to get topics out into the open for you. Because I'll take the hits. People hate me? That's fine. I'm very used to being hated. It's sort of a feature of my life. It's one of those things that happens when you're outspoken and aggressive. But I am willing to take those hits to my credibility, which, by the way, I built up for years in mainstream Catholic publications. I, I wasn't writing for traditionalist publications. I wasn't doing work on the fringes. I was writing for mainstream Catholic magazines. And I've had people who used to consider me a friend or enjoy my work flat out turn on me viciously because of the kinds of things that I say now. And yet I'm the same person. I'm no less committed to the truth than I was then. I just happen to see that the truth has become inconvenient. And it, and it absolutely wrecks Catholic confirmation bias, especially in a, in a time where we have come to believe that every word from the mouth of the Pope is given from on high. And it's simply not. It's simply not. But I was willing to, to step out of the foxhole with my big old gun and lay down fire so that we could charge the enemy base. And what ended up happening? I turn around as I'm taking bullets left and right to see a bunch of cowards behind me sitting in the trench 
peeking over the edge, shrugging. Sorry, you're on your own. This is not an indictment of anyone in particular because I know that in in the particular, in specific circumstances, there are considerations that have to be taken. And I have personally counseled theologians or priests, don't go out into public with this thing that you're thinking because you're just going to get hammered. Like You going out there by yourself saying this will do almost no good and the risk will outweigh the reward. There are times when you've got to be strategic about that. And as somebody who worked in corporate communications and public relations, look, I know there are times when falling on your sword isn't going to do any good. It's not. just not. You're going to die in vain. But I'm speaking in general, in the aggregate. We should have, I don't know, if there's ever been a time for backbone, if there's ever been a time for for people who love the faith and know it better than I do, because frankly, the reason I'm a writer is because I have to look everything up. I'm good at researching things. I'm bad at remembering them. But I know people who could, I mean, off the top of their head, blow you away with their theological exposition of, of what's going on. And they can reference the doctors and the fathers and the scriptures. They know it inside and out. They are articulate spokesmen for Christ, and they're in the closet. And I'm so sick of it. I'm so sick of feeling alone. I'm so sick of getting up every day and knowing I have to somehow find a way to to strike the balance between providing the edifying content that I would like to provide and dealing with whatever the crisis du jour is, because there's always another one, and it's this magisterium of the media where we just float all these damned stalking horses out and all these errors out through the media and convince the world that the church is changing her teaching because everybody believes that the Pope has some kind of magic talisman around his neck that makes every utterance that he says the word of God, which couldn't be further from the truth. And nobody's educated enough to know the difference. And you go out day after day and you make the distinctions and you tell people, hold up. You don't have to listen to this. And in fact, this is wrong. And here's why. And then you're the sinner for that. You're the bad person. Because, you know, who are you? You're more Catholic than the Pope? Yeah, it's a low bar, guys. Right now, it's about as low as it's ever been. I would not let that man teach my children basic catechism because he distorts the scriptures and the doctrines all the time. This isn't just the fact that that's a cliche. Are you more Catholic than the Pope? Yeah. You know what? I'm more Catholic than this one. I'm more Catholic than John the 12th was when he was raping female pilgrims or Urban the sixth when he was torturing Cardinals or Alexander the sixth when he was having orgies. I'm sorry. Bad Popes happen. This should be a bumper sticker. But I need some help. Because I start looking pretty damned quixotic when I'm out there every day tilting at these ecclesiastical windmills. And no matter how much sense I make, no matter how many facts I bring to bear, no matter how good of a case I make, if I stand alone at the bottom rung of that ladder without the credibility and authority that theologians and priests and bishops have, 
if the only people who ever come forward do it anonymously or pseudonymously, and God bless them for doing that. I have some of them are right for me. I've published the, the open letter to the Pope from one of the former members of the Curia anonymously, and I defended his decision to do it anonymously because he's worried about the repercussions on not just himself, but his superiors and others around him. That's legit. But, you know, there's a time for calculating and there's a time for martyrdom. And when we have a Pope openly and flagrantly contradicting church teaching, and again, contraception is just the most obvious and recent example, it's time to cowboy up, to muster up your courage and say, you know what, I'm going to take a risk here. This needs to be said. If six noteworthy theologians from different universities came forward and issued a joint statement, it'd be something. If five bishops from different countries around the world came forward and said something, man, it'd be like a shot heard around the world. We don't need an overwhelming majority. But we need it to not look like there's nobody. I know for a fact that these clerics and these theologians believe the same thing that I do. They know that what's happening is wrong. They know that the Pope is in error. They know it because they have told me. And I look like I'm making things up when I get into a conversation with somebody. And I say, well, I've been told by such and such an anonymous person that you know this, that, and the other thing. Oh, yeah, because you're not making that up, Steve. No, I'm not making it up because I'm not a liar. Gosh, if I was a liar, I would be doing things very differently because I put my credibility on the line every day and it costs me. I'm honest to a fault. Let me read you something that I have been sworn not to share the identity of the person who said it. But there's a, a cleric who I respect very much, a member of the clergy, and very holy, very wise. And I reached out to him and I, and I asked about everything that's going on with Francis. And this was before, honestly. Um, it was before the Zika thing. It was before the contraception thing. It was, it was just with one of the Pope videos. I was asking him about, you know, just the whole Gaia religion bullcrap, because that's what it is. And he said that the issue with Pope Francis is sad, that it's a trial for our faith and for our supernatural view of the church, and that it's God's mysterious permission that it's happening. He said that... um that this pontificate, and I'm going to quote, represents an eclipse of the sun of Catholic truth. Let that sink in. This pontificate represents an eclipse of the sun of Catholic truth. It's a pretty significant statement. He said that the eclipse is temporal and so it passes and that we must pray fervently for the salvation of the poor soul of Pope Francis. And 
and at the same time for the miracle that the next conclave will give us a traditional pope. Yeah, we need to pray for his salvation, for his conversion. He also told me when I asked, because one of the things that he suggested in our correspondence is that we kind of have to ignore what's going on in the papacy. And I said, but I can't ignore. I'm in a position where I can share information that corrects these errors. Should I ignore? Should I not do this? And he said, you can, and of course, you should continue to fight the holy battle of the faith and to present the correct doctrine of the church in the case of the Pope or other authorities when they distort it. And his only caveat was do it in a respectful manner. And frankly, I try to make all of my public criticisms reasonable and respectful. I do respect the office of the papacy. In fact, I submit to you that I respect it a great deal more than the man who currently occupies it. In fact, one of the reasons that I am so angry is because of how deeply he disrespects the papacy. All of the symbolism, all of the meaning, the gravity, the weight of what the papacy is. Paul VI, of whom I am not a fan, no secret. I think he was one of the worst popes. He's just been upstaged recently. In his encyclical Mysterium Fidei, he had the sense, he expressed the sense that Francis lacks. He says, quote, Having safeguarded the integrity of the faith, it is necessary to safeguard also its proper mode of expression, lest, by the careless use of words, we occasion, God forbid, the rise of false opinions regarding faith in the most sublime of mysteries. St. Augustine gives us a stern warning about this in his consideration of the way of speaking employed by the philosophers and of that which ought to be used by Christians. The philosophers, he says, speak freely without fear of offending religious listeners on subjects quite difficult to understand. We, on the other hand, must speak according to a fixed norm, lest the lack of restraint in our speech result in some impious opinion even about the things signified by the words themselves. I, I, I'm a little bit speechless, which is probably hard to believe after the length of this rant. But I mean, honestly, what is going on? You know, there's a pope who was posthumously anathematized. You familiar with him? His name is Pope Honorius the first. And the basic story goes like this. Monothelitism was a heresy that was raging at the time. And it was the kind of heresy that, honestly, if it existed today, 
those who were arguing about it. Let's just imagine that this was a heresy that arose today. And so people are arguing about monothelitism on Facebook. And monothelitism had to do with the question of how many wills Christ had. Because remember, the early Christological heresies were, they were all about Christology. I mean, they were all about the nature of who Christ was. Was he, you know, both human and divine, Arianism? Arianism said he was only human. Was Did he have one soul or two, like a human soul and a divine soul? Or did he just have a divine soul? Was he sort of like a human body inhabited by God? Did he have one will or two will, a human will and a divine will? Did those wills, if they both existed separately, always act together in concert? Or you know, did they have independent actions from one another? So this is where monothelitism comes in. And monothelitism is a heresy that basically says that, that Christ's will, wills, because he had a human will and a divine will, they both existed, but there was only one action. They worked completely in concert. Now, you could probably reflect very quickly on the moment in the agony in the garden where Christ is, is begging the Father to let the chalice pass from him, but then submits and says, not my will, but thine be done. You see the example there that Christ has both a human and a divine will, and they each have their own separate action. They could at times be a little bit at war with one another, but ultimately the submission of his human will to the divine will took place. So these were the kinds of things that were being argued about. But imagine this argument on Facebook, because, I mean, we talk about things like we wrote about the conflation of the greatest commandment and the second commandment, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. In Evangelii Gaudium 161, love your neighbor is elevated to the greatest commandment. Love of God is not even mentioned. And this begins all the way back in Gaudium et Spes 24 when, you know, it says, I'm paraphrasing, but it says that the, the greatest commandment is love of God and love of neighbor. You can't conflate the two. They're different. They're different. They're related. They're inextricably intertwined. You can't have the one without the other, but yet there is a priority in Christ at the priority. Love of God comes first and love of neighbor comes second and, and is ordered to the love of God, right? But we've had articles about that on the website. We've had discussions and debates about it on Facebook. And I have been told countless times that the conflation of the greatest commandment and the second commandment are inconsequential because they're inextricably bound up and they, they go together. And no, Christ said they were separate. The greatest is love of God. The second and subordinate is love of neighbor. And there's there's reasons behind that. There's theological reasons. There's ontological reasons. We exist for God, not for neighbor. And now we have Evangelii Gaudium where love of neighbor is elevated because if the two are the same, then, well, this humanistic worship of, of man instead of God can can easily replace. It's that Trojan horse. This is how heresy comes into the church. Well, monothelitism, the same people would be saying it's not a problem to say that Christ's will only had one action. One action, two actions, tomato, tomato. They're inextricably bound up. It doesn't make any difference, right? It's pedantry. You're splitting hairs. It matters. Truth is a matter of semantics. Theology is parsed down to the most specific and precise language possible. Why? 
Because every word matters when expressing ineffable truths. To the extent that you can express something ineffable, because that's what the word means, is that you can't. So, Pope Honorius, influenced most likely by the patriarch in Constantinople, who wanted nothing to do with this debate, he suppressed the theological debate over whether or not Christ's you know, two wills had two distinct actions. He didn't promote monothelitism. He didn't say, <laughs> you know, to, to paraphrase what people are saying now, well, he didn't change any doctrine. He didn't say ex cathedra that Christ only had one action in his will. No, he didn't. You know what he did? He just stopped the, the orthodox theologians from making their case. He stopped the heterodox theologians from pushing it too hard. So what was the result? In the Third Council of Constantinople, Honorius was a legitimate pope, anathematized posthumously. He's dead. The council's convoked. They say, quote, We anathemize Honorius, who did not seek to purify this apostolic church with the teaching of apostolic tradition, but by a profane betrayal permitted its stainless faith to be surrendered. I know listening is not the same as reading, so let's hit that again because the language is a bit dense. We anathematize Honorius, who did not seek to purify this apostolic church with the teaching of apostolic tradition, but by a profane betrayal permitted its stainless faith be surrendered. He's being accused of negligence. He didn't uphold the teaching of the church according to apostolic tradition. Now, monothelitism was a debate because the doctrines hadn't been completely and sufficiently defined. But remember, doctrine is not ever something new. Dogma is not ever something new. It's an explication of what is already known, what is already revealed through revelation in the scriptures or brought forward through apostolic tradition. The truths are there from the beginning. They're all there in the seed of the church. And these developments help to, you know, put structure around our understanding of those truths, but they don't change. So the apostolic tradition existed, even if the theological constructs did not. And the Third Council of Constantinople condemns Honorius because he failed to defend the church against heresy. And if you have any question about that, you can actually read what Pope Leo II said to the bishops of Spain Separately from the council, he says that Honorius is one who, quote, did not, as became the apostolic authority, quench the flame of heretical doctrine as it sprang up, but quickened it by his negligence, end quote. He was not accused of promoting heresy. He was not accused of changing doctrine. He was not accused of spouting heresy ex cathedra didn't happen. He was condemned because he didn't stop heresy as it arose and he quickened it by his neglect. If that is not what the synod on marriage and family is a prime example of, let's set aside the contraception nonsense. Let's set aside Evangelii Gaudium 161. Let's set aside Pope Francis saying things like, you know, the, the miracle of the loaves and the fishes is a miracle of sharing. It's not, you know, magic. It's not idolatry. Let's set aside 
his strange exegesis on St. Paul's understanding of sin and that Christ has our sins in his soul and that he likes it when we sin. Oh, there's so many of these things. But let's set them all aside. Let's just look at the synod. Let's look at the men who were empowered. Cardinal Casper, who was fading into obscurity. He was an issue during John Paul II's papacy. He was an issue because he's an ecumenical nightmare. He's been a heretic forever. I mean, really, there's no other way to describe him. He's a heretic. Just uncondemned. Okay, so whatever. Uh, Objective heresy is one thing and formal heresy is another. But now we learn that he's one of Pope Francis's favorite theologians. He promotes him and praises him all the time. He allows him to give the speech at the consistory in February of 2014, which is the preparatory body for the first half of the Synod in October, that following October. And this is where the whole idea gets floated of communion for the divorced and remarried. Casper spends a year and a half going out campaigning for communion for the divorced and remarried, so much as saying that the Pope endorses his idea, that they're in agreement on it. Not one word of correction from the Vatican, not one word of correction from Pope Francis. What Casper was promoting is a heresy. Who did not, as became the apostolic authority, quench the flame of heretical doctrine as it sprang up, but quickened it by his negligence. Of course, it's not just Casper, it's Marx, it's Bonnie, it's Daniels, it's Koch. Maradiaga, Forte, Baldessari. There's any number of prelates that have been pushing heretical ideas and changes to church teaching that are actually less subtle than the theological distinctions around monothelitism. I promise you this, if Catholicism means anything, if it is true, if it is really what we believe, the true inspired religion, the only Christian religion, the fullness of God's truth, the mystical bride and body of Christ, this papacy will be condemned. It will. There's simply no other option at this point. Now, the question remains whether that will happen in our lifetimes or in the lifetimes of our children. I don't know. Honorius wasn't long dead when he was condemned. But the papacies were moving at a pretty brisk clip in his day. There was a lot of turnover. I don't know what it's going to take to shake things up. Now, there are some who believe that Francis is an anti-pope. There are some that believe he wasn't canonically elected. There are some that believe that he has forfeited his office through manifest heresy. There are some who believe blah, 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 blah. doesn't matter. I don't know. It's not, not my decision. Above my pay grade to make those kinds of decisions. I don't know if he's an anti-pope. Frankly, I don't care. I mean, sure, I'd be interested if... 
if it's proven, I would be very interested. It would actually make things easier <laughs> because you can dismiss a lot of his ecclesiastical actions. His official actions would be kind of wiped off the books if he was an anti-pope. But I have no conviction that that's the result we're going to get because I see no movement in that direction and I haven't seen a compelling case made. And don't even start in the comments. Uh, look, I've read Bellarmine. I've read Suarez. Stop. This is for the bishops to decide. But I do know this. He can be a legitimate pope and express heresy or fail to stop heresy within his personal opinions and purview and discipline and be condemned without ever being declared an anti-pope because it's happened before and it can happen again and it will and it must because his promotion of error is devastating. And frankly, it weakens the faithful in a time where we need more than ever to be strengthened. I would be presuming too much if I believed that I had the influence to make an impact. You know, our website gets a few hundred thousand visitors a month. My podcasts get downloaded a few thousand times. It's a, it's a drop in the bucket. We may be one of the loudest voices crying out about this stuff, but uh, our reach goes only so far. I'm not arrogant enough to presume that my voice will convince, will tip the scales. But I am begging you, priests, bishops, theologians, cardinals, if you are decent men who love Christ and his church, you must confront these errors. This is not about juridical process or requirements. This is not about trying to force out a pope and alternate claimants and new conclaves. This is literally about souls being led into error and sin, being led astray from Catholic truth who may never find their way back. Souls who will be convinced that Pope Francis has taught them one thing and then when inevitably those things are reversed by a future pope, if it happens in their lifetime, either losing faith in the church entirely because two popes are in conflict and, and that doesn't make sense based on what they know about the church, or just choosing to believe the one that said the thing that they liked better. We're talking fundamental issues. Contraception. Sacrilegious communion given to those in adulterous relationships. The acceptance, if not outright legitimization, of homosexual relationships and communion there as well. These are, these are fundamental issues. These are the things that even after the asteroid, even in the post-conciliar period where liturgy and catechesis and theology were crumbling, 
We held fast on sexual teachings. That's what John Paul II was known for. The reason why Pope John Paul II is so beloved, other than his personal charisma, is because he held the line on abortion and contraception and all of the issues related to the sexual revolution. He fought it. And that became, for many Catholics, the only standard of orthodoxy. It wasn't, you know, whether you heard your priest preaching from the pulpit about reverent liturgy. It was, does your priest ever give a homily about contraception? Does he ever give a homily about abortion? Our standards had become so low that if you found a priest who at least did that, that was considered a solid parish. And now even that standard is being erased. I'm not asking any bishop to throw away his influence unduly. Any priest, any theologian. Look, we have to be smart and we have to be strategic. I understand. If we lose you and there's too few to begin with, because you make some rash action and you come out and make a statement that shouldn't be made and, and you get cut off and marginalized. That doesn't do anybody any good. But it doesn't excuse you for doing nothing. It doesn't excuse you for waiting for someone else to come forward, to step up and be the guy who faces this down. You don't get to just sit back and wait. You don't get to just sit back and pray for a hero to come marching in on a white horse. I've been in the trenches fighting this for three years now. And I'm tired, frankly. And it would be really, really nice if the people who I know agree with me would step out of the shadows. We're it. We're the heroes. If you're waiting for someone to fight this battle, look in the mirror. We're all we've got. And I believe in a hierarchical church, in a monarchical church, where the Pope is more than just the first among equals. He is the supreme and sovereign head of the church. This is not a grassroots revolt. The laity can hold people to account to a certain extent, but I owe my, my fidelity and my allegiance, and when necessary, my obedience to the, to the priests and the bishops that God has given that authority to. I can never make the impact you can make. You bishops especially, you princes of the church, act like you know your job. I know that there aren't many of you who believe what I believe, but those of you who do have to do something 
or you will be complicit in the loss of souls. It's happening all around you every day in your diocese and in dioceses around the world. The faithful are craving desperately real ecclesiastical leadership. Where are you? Where are our men, our heroes, our saints? We can't do it without you. It's time to come forward. You have been listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. This has been a production of 1 Peter 5 Incorporated, copyright 2016, all rights reserved. Please remember to visit us online at www.1peter5.com. You can join our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1peter5 and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash, you guessed it, 1peter5. If you feel we have provided you with something of value, please hit our donate page located at 1peter5.com forward slash donate and make a contribution. It's tax deductible and not only helps pay for our web hosting and the fine content we provide, but keeps food on our tables, coffee in our cups, and the lights on, which really helps us see what we're doing. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. Thanks for listening.